Tonight, for our teaching, we're taking a look at Ephesians chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse 3. So again, you can follow along in your Bibles. I'll have it on the screen here for a minute and refer back to it. But here's the full text. Ephesians, 3, be- Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you then with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. So live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here ends our sermon lesson. We're working through our summer on Ephesians. And we've said that, kind of cool, Ephesians is structured the same way that Christianity is structured, in the sense that it is front-loaded with God's grace. It's front-loaded with God's plan of salvation. Now, what we said that means in recent weeks is that the first three chapters are all about God's plan of salvation through grace. Remember, we are predestined by the Father, we are saved by the Son, and we are sealed by the Spirit of God. It's all a product of God's grace, and that's the opening. And then, and only then, does the Apostle Paul say, and this is how you should live out of that gift of salvation. And in other words, in your walk with Christ, we've talked in recent weeks about principles of Christian living. And since chapter 4, we've mentioned at least six of them, general, universal principles of Christian living. Uh, God's desire for Christian unity, uh, God's desire that uh, public ministers be called to equip God's people for works of service so that the church might be built up. We've talked about the process of spiritual maturity. We've talked about the putting off of the old self that has a value system that just mirrors the rest of this world. We've talked about the putting on of the new self that regards our new status as dearly loved children of God. And then the last thing we looked at last week, uh, we said new behaviors that we're now aiming at. And the five things that we mentioned specifically were honesty, calm, hard work, positive talk, and forgiveness. Now, again, these are universal principles of Christian living. But what the Apostle Paul is now going to do is he's going to start getting more specific. So today, what we're, what we're jumping into is sexual immorality and drunkenness. And what we're going to do in subsequent weeks is we're going to take a look at working out our salvation when it comes to Christian marriages, to Christian parenting, and to Christian employment. Okay, but tonight, in particular, sexual immorality and drunkenness. And we're going to make the, the 
outline as simple as we can possibly make it. Very blunt. I don't want this to be salacious, but I also want to be, uh, we got to talk about it. Like, I want to be at least as blunt as Paul is. So, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and what, it, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit to live as light? Okay? Sexual immorality, drunkenness, filled with the Spirit to live as light. First of all, sexual immorality. There's two verses in this text that are really kind of provocative and profound, and we're going to spend most of our time just kind of unpacking these two concepts. But the first one is right here in verse 3 where he says, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, okay, so in that chapter, or in that paragraph, he uses other words to provide nuance for that. So he talks about impropriety, he talks about obscene and coarse joking, he talks about greed, which will explain how that uh, is compared to this in a second. He talks about obscenity, but the, the, make no mistake, the root topic is sexual immorality. And the word that he uses here for sexual immorality in Greek, it's just the word pornia. Now, so that you don't, it's where we get our word pornography from. And so that you know, I'm not just making up my own personal, this is Pastor Hines' definition of what sexual immorality is. I want to show you that this is literally what the language means. I know you don't study Greek. I know, that's okay. What I want to show you though, top one there is called the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains. It says immorality, sexual immorality of any sort. The bottom one is low nida is Greek to English lexicon. And it says sexual sin of a general kind that includes many different types of behaviors. That's pornaya. It's an intentionally general type of word, but we need to unpack and define it a little bit. Um, one of the reasons it's general is because um, what is accepted and what is considered offensive in society sexually and regarding other things too is culturally conditioned. So what types of foods people like, what types of music people like, what types of, uh, you know, what types of clothes people wear, and for that matter, what are acceptable forms of sexual expression are so much culturally conditioned. So for instance, in first century Rome, you know what was very common sexually? Temple prostitution and having sex with household servants and slaves. Very common in first century Rome. Now, modern Americans, modern Western people tend to look at that and think, well, that's terribly offensive and, and terrible and abusive because anything that, anytime we hear about sexual um, expression that involves like financial transaction, we tend to think that that's, that's horrible. The commoditization of sexuality and the sale of it is terrible. You know what? I think first century Roman people would look at America's kind of hookup culture regarding sexuality and say, you know what I think they would say? I think they would say, at least we're giving some people something for it. In other words, we at least when we have sex with people, we're giving them money, we're giving them a roof over their heads, we're giving them food, we're giving them clothes. You are having sex with somebody who's not your spouse and you're not giving them anything. And I think they would look at that as actually more abusive than what they were doing. And here's my point. I'm not arguing for one or the other of those. Those are both forms of sexual immorality, okay? What I'm saying is what we tend to be offended by or find appealing is very much culturally conditioned and therefore you cannot look at what is normative in society and say it's good because it's normal. Just because something has commonality doesn't mean it actually has morality. So don't allow yourself to be duped into thinking, well, it's commonplace, people of my age in society today and therefore it's okay. No, that does not equate to godliness. The second thing that I want to uh, point out and pull out in this is, so, pornia and the Greek word moikoio are used uh, together in conjunction quite often in the New Testament. Moikoio is generally translated as adultery. 
So it's sexual immorality and adultery. And adultery has a very technical definition, right? It means that you're married and you have sex with somebody who's not your marriage partner. Sexual immorality is kind of the opposite of that. It's a catch-all that means, okay, if you're not married and having any kind of sexual activity. It's part of the reason why I'm giving you the definition here because, look, uh, if you're having any sexual activity outside of what God designs, which is by design and creation, a man and a woman in the context of marriage, that falls under the umbrella of sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul's encouragement here is don't let there even be, how much? A hint of that in your life. Now, that is a brilliant phrase, just a hint. Um, So, the translators are taking a little bit of license with it. Uh, it, What it literally says there in Greek is let it not even be named amongst you. And he doesn't mean let it not be named as in, like, don't ever talk about sexual immorality because then he'd be violating his own principle in talking about sexual immorality. What he's saying here is don't let either even be a little bit of this in your life. Not even a tiny bit. See, this is why it's a little creative in the translation, but I think it's good because a hint is not the full thing. A hint is not a full secret. It's something that points towards the full secret. So if the full secret in sexual immorality is something like sexual intercourse, a hint is anything that is just pointing towards that, right? And Paul says, there shouldn't even be a hint of that going on in your lives. Um, This is incredibly relevant to the question of how far is too far in our relationships when we're not married. Um, I don't know a single Christian couple that has ever not wondered how far is too far physically in our relationship, and yet I know probably less than a percentage point of Christian couples who have had productive conversations with Christian authorities in their life that cared about them that actually helped spell out for them how far is exactly too far. I I say this as somebody who, um, you know, I had lots of wonderful Christian authorities in my life growing up, probably several hundred of them when you count things like parents and neighbors and teachers and pastors and stuff like that. And you know how many productive conversations I had regarding how far is too far in a relationship? Not that I, any that I remember. How does that happen? So I'm growing up and I'm becoming a teenager in the late 90s against the backdrop of like the advent of the internet and like every terrible dating TV show Uh, that there is, and the only serious conversation I ever heard that I remember having, remember hearing as a teenager regarding how far is too far was actually the media's coverage of uh, Bill Clinton's deposition in the Monica Lewinsky scandal. That was the only time I heard what what actually constitutes the full line for sexual immorality. Let's put it like this. Let there not be a hint Anything that points to the full thing, if you're not married, is not appropriate for God's people. Um, Not even a hint. Not even something pointing to that. That's why, you see, what Paul knows is if he says, okay, here's 100 things you shouldn't do. You know what human creativity is going to do? All right, well, here's 101 through 200 other things that I might be able to get away with. In other words, we'll work for loopholes in the system in order to try to figure stuff out. And so Paul kind of broadly but comprehensively and brilliantly says, let there not even be a little bit, let there not be a hint of this that exists in your life. So where is that line exactly? Let's put it like this. Let me make this super clear because I think a lot of us haven't actually heard this. A hint, of sexual, a hint of sexual immorality, let's just say anything involving sexual organs for pleasure 
if you're not married, that probably constitutes sexual immorality. There's a line right there. Um, Somebody might say, well, what about the urges that I have? This is just an appetite that the world encourages and their natural urges. And the urges, of course, are not wrong. God is the one that wired us for these urges. Um, I don't want to be unsympathetic in this at all because I understand it's difficult and it's a struggle. But I do want to say a couple different things. Work towards a godly outlet. Not, don't accept cheap shortcuts. And here's specifically what I mean. Number one, if you live a chaste, pure, and celibate life, it's not going to kill you. I don't know, I've never yet done a funeral for somebody who died from a lack of sexual activity, okay? So it's not going to kill you despite what this world might tell you. Number two, all right? Number two, um, some of you are called to a life of singleness, not just called to a life of singleness, but are gifted with singleness. And I don't want you to despise that in an overtly sexualized culture. I want you to cherish that as some way that God has honored you because he's, he's allowed you to be single because he's working to accomplish some extraordinary things through you that he couldn't accomplish maybe if you were married and had kids. So you look at the characters throughout the Bible who often God uses the most powerfully and how many of them, for instance, the Apostle Paul, could never have fully conducted their ministries if they weren't single. So if God has called you to singleness, cherish that and expect, respect that as a high honor and understand he's going to try, accomplish some extraordinary things through you. The third thing that I'd want to say to that is um, if you're afraid that you're going to miss out on something in this lifetime through a lifetime of purity and chastity and celibacy, you're not. The best sexual relationship here on earth is only a foretaste of the intimacy and pleasure and joy that we will one day have with God in all eternity. God is the one who authors that pleasure and he's not going to deprive of us, any of us of that pleasure when we get to eternal life, okay? So trust me, you are not going to miss out on anything by honoring God in your purity. The fourth thing that I want to say, and this is, I'm going to say this especially to young men, in part because I'm not sure it's completely appropriate coming from me directly to young women, even though I think young women absolutely have to have these conversations. Um, But the other thing that I would say is, so far as I can tell, the research suggests there are more young women that want to get married than young men, and yet the young men want to have just as much or more sexual activity than many of the young women. So here's what I'm going to say to specifically young men who are desiring a godly sexual outlet for their natural God-given drives work towards a godly marriage. And you might say, well, I want to get married and yet it hasn't happened for me quite yet, so what am I supposed to do? Let me say this. All right, number one, make an income. Number two, steward your body. Number three, be kind and humble. And number four, treat a woman like Jesus did. Those aren't like my rules for dating. Those are biblical principles that are good. Uh, make an income. In other words, use the gifts that God has given you to work hard and prove to people that you can provide. That makes you attractive. Number two, steward the blessings that God has given you in life, including your physical blessings. That proves that you can take care of important things. That makes you attractive. Number three, be kind and humble because the fruit of the Spirit will make you attractive relationally. Number four, treat a woman the way Jesus would because any Christian woman who's worth marrying is going to want you to be as Christ-like as possible, okay? Make an income, 
steward your body, be kind and humble, treat a woman the way Jesus would. Let me, put you, let me give you an analogy, and I think this will make a little bit more sense. If I go up to my wife during the week and I want to kiss her and she says, no, your breath smells terrible, the appropriate response to that is not to say, just love me the way I am. Accept me for all my flaws and all my warts and all. The appropriate response to that is, go and brush your teeth. Right? There's some control that you have over this. Go and brush your teeth, whatever that means in your life. Um, I think society has convinced us through like a cheapened sexuality that sexual satisfaction is merely an appetite and therefore it should be simple and easy to satisfy. And that's not, that's that just a lie. It's something that you actually have to work at. Um, and therefore, I think this is where the greed part fits in that we talked about earlier. Um, remember what Paul, he was, he was comparing, comparing sexual immorality and saying there's an element of greed attached to it. I think, you know, what is greed? Greed is when we want something materially that doesn't belong to you. What is sexual immorality? It's wanting something sexually that doesn't belong to you. You know, someone that you are not married to. Cheapened shortcuts are only going to damage your spiritual life, damage your self-image, damage your relationships, and maybe even damage you physically. If left unrepented, they could jeopardize your salvation. So repent. But here is the final thing that I need to say on this topic. Um, I want you to understand, I need you to understand that the Apostle Paul is talking to people who in this very moment are in the throes of some level of sexual immorality. Uh, you can tell that because he uses all present tense verbs. I don't have the full section up there, but he says things like, uh, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has, currently has, any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of heaven. In other words, it's very serious, but he is not referring to somebody who has committed sexual sin in the past and repented of it. See, that's very different. For somebody who is currently in the throes of sexual sin and is impenitent, so look at it like this. David, whom we read a psalm from earlier, he was disciplined for his sexual impurity and impropriety, but he was not rejected by God. Uh, if, these sins are, if these are sins right now in your life, you need to confess to somebody. You need to get help from Christian friends. You need to repent to the Lord. But if you're bothered by mistakes that you've made in the past and you've already repented of those sins, you have to leave them at the foot of the cross and be done with them. Because no sin is so great that it can bring damnation to those who are repentant. Impenitence forfeits grace. But God's grace is so much bigger than all of, all of our sins. Okay? As we continue on in our after school special, we move on to drunkenness. And the second like really provocative thing that the Apostle Paul says here is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That is... It is a mind-blowing comparison when you actually understand what he's saying. He's very clearly contrasting something because he says, instead, don't do this, instead, do this. And what he's saying is, don't be filled on, on wine and alcohol, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get high on alcohol and drugs, get high on the Spirit of God. What does that mean? It means there's some point of comparison between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Some commonality and some difference. And what it seems to mean then is, look, obviously people enjoy drunkenness to some extent or they wouldn't do it. 
but with so many negative consequences that come from it, from a distortion of reality in the moment to uh, the immediate effects like the next day of a hangover or the propensity for things like addiction that can totally ruin your life to the fact that it can lead you to do stupid stuff. Uh, it leads to debauchery and depravity and immorality. So the question is, why do people do it? So why is it enjoyable? Why do people do it? And why does it lead to debauchery? What's the, con what's the point of comparison with being filled with the Spirit. Here's what it is. And I got to tell you, I, I, I'm not professing to be a doctor or a biologist or understand exactly how this works, but my understanding of drunkenness and why it leads to debauchery is the following. See, in a fallen world, every human being struggles with pain. And generally speaking, what we like to do with pain is we try to numb it as much as possible. Well, psychologically, we also know that there are pain-like emotions. So pain-like emotions would include things like uh, frustration, disappointment, grief, sadness, fear. Your negative emotions uh, kind of naturally get dampened because of these naturally produced substances of serotonin and, and something called GABA. Well, there's other substances that you can take that work on those systems. So alcohol, as well as things like Valium and uh, barbiturates, they work on your GABA system. And what they do is alcohol, it depresses it depresses the anxiety that you're experiencing in that moment. What it does technically is it shuts off your negative emotion circuitry while at the exact same time leaving on all of your positive emotion circuitry. So it feels like all the bad negative emotions have gone away, but your propensity and capacity to experience positive emotion is still there. And what further makes it addictive then is every time your blood alcohol levels rise, you get a, do a dopamine kick which is like yourself biologically telling you that this is working and that this is appealing. The problem is, it, it distorts reality, it doesn't change reality. If it changes reality, it makes reality worse. We actually, I remember one psychologist saying once that uh, alcohol is probably the worst drug that we could legalize because of what it does to you, what it leads us to do, and it's, uh, how difficult it is to actually come out of an addiction to it. Uh, there's, so far as I know, there isn't another single drug that we know that makes us more aggressive. Half of all murders that are committed in the United States are committed by people who are drunk. And half of everyone who's murdered in the United States is drunk and made bad decisions about, decisions about getting themselves in bad situations. There's no other drug that's quite like that. Um, not to mention, it, it, it leads us to do other personally stupid things. The New, New Living Translation's translation of this verse, I think, is particularly good. It says, don't be drunk on wine because it will ruin your life. Now, okay, so if drunkenness, what it does is it makes it feel like our problems go away, but actually creates more problems, how do you prevent something like drunkenness? Well, we know what sociologically and historically doesn't work, Prohibition did not seem to work, right? Just mandated. What you have to do in order to overcome drunkenness is you have to have something in your life that's more exciting than alcohol. You have to have a mission in your life that is worth journeying on with Christ that is better than alcohol. You know, I've always thought it was super interesting that, so God has given us this naturally produced stuff called adrenaline and adrenal glands. And trust me, I know adrenal glands do other things than produce, uh, you know, fight or flight chemicals. 
But it, it is interesting that we have that naturally produced in us, that God gave that to us. Now, what's also interesting is what happens if you are, for instance, a modern 21st century American Christian and you have made your life so extraordinarily safe in every respect that you're completely risk averse and you live behind the white picket fence and you've got the security system and your 401k is producing you know, fairly well and everything is relatively safe. I'm not knocking any of that, by the way. I think that's a lot of probably good decisions. Here's what I'm saying. What on earth would you need fight or flight chemicals for at that point? There is such a thing as making your life almost ungodly safe. To live on a mission just for comfort, just for pleasure, just for safety, that's not exactly the mission that Jesus Christ has called us to. And actually using those adrenaline, there's a lot of interesting research that suggests if you make your life so safe, that adrenaline is looking for a natural outlet and what people often then do is they push that, uh, they push for an adrenaline rush in other areas of life that are unproductive and unhealthy, which includes excess substance abuse and addictions and, and other kinds of stuff like that. I remember going to a counseling seminar uh, a number of years ago and the therapist said that he had prescribed to a guy with a porn addiction that once a week he has to go and ride a dirt bike. And uh, he said, you've got to do extreme sports because he had this nice, cushy, office job life. And he said, you're looking for some kind of high and you need to do it in a healthier way than what your current addiction. You need to release those chemicals elsewhere. Now, whether or not that's sensible, I don't know. What I do know is you need something in your life that's more compelling, more attractive, more exciting than alcohol and other worse alternatives. You need to courageously live out the mission that God has placed you on as part of the church. Let me give you four quick things to think about. Number one, surround yourself with a community of believers. Number two, make decisions that aren't primarily just about pleasure in this moment but are about long-term impact. Number three, hold difficult conversations in your life. Conversations that are ones that could actually save some people's souls, but conversations that you hold that are awkward enough that other people might reject you for and despise you for. And uh, number four, sacrifice tangibly, regularly, and mightily for people in life that really need it. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor in order to energize your community. And if you do those four things, I cannot guarantee that your life will be safe. What I can guarantee your life will have is love, meaning, adrenaline, and godliness. Let's move to the last point. Okay, so just to summarize where we've been real, real quick, I know life is hard. I know life is hard. I know that sinful indulgence and overindulgence has been a problem. It's not only a problem for people today, it was a problem for ancient people too. In Ephesus and elsewhere, people have always been self-medicating negative emotions through cheap and easy things like sexuality and substance abuse. But they always, always find the same thing that this, in the moment, it feels like it's getting rid of your problems, but it's actually just creating more and bigger problems in the long run. So what do you do? And I also want to be very clear that I say this with zero judgment upon any of you. The goal for stuff like this is that people would be able to confess to somebody like an authority who's non-judgmental and who help get them the support that they need in moments like this. This is part of the blessing of the church. We're all just sinners saved by grace, so we have no judgment for one another in that regard. We're just working uh, to guide one another on the path that the Lord has called us to. I say all of this as somebody who, um, for instance, enjoys alcohol in moderation, but I also understand at the same time that alcohol is depressant. 
it makes you feel uninhibited and unafraid because it's literally deadening something inside of you and it makes you less functional in the process. That is the exact opposite of the way being filled with the Spirit works. Being filled with the Spirit does not deaden anything inside of you. It doesn't get rid of your problems. It helps you tap into divine strength that makes you big enough and strong enough to face the problems that you're facing in life. Um, Alcohol is one of those things that distorts the reality or your perception of reality around you. The Spirit does the exact opposite. He reveals more beautiful truth in your life. Alcohol, when you overconsume it, the day afterwards you get a hangover. You know what all that really is? It's withdrawal. It's chemical withdrawal in your life and you literally feel a little bit like you're dying. If you massively consume the Spirit of God, you know what happens? You feel more peace, more calm, more contentment. Uh, Paul's answer to overcome negative emotion is to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with spirits. To have intimacy with God, not have lust with other human beings. And, you know, I don't think I've ever made this connection until this week, but um, the story of Pentecost, so if we're going to talk about being filled with the Spirit, we've got to look at Pentecost. You know what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2? The disciples got up and they boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave and they garnered a bunch of attention and thousands of people came to faith that day. And you know what the criticism of them was at that moment, the first criticism? These guys must be drunk. Acts 2.13. Now, I've thought about this for a long time because a lot of commentators will say, well, they perceive them as drunk because they're speaking in tongues. I don't think that's a good enough explanation. You know why? I think the natural explanation then would be they're having some kind of mystical spiritual experience if they're speaking in tongues. There must have been something that they were conveying that was close to drunkenness that they were projecting in what they were doing. You know what I think they were doing? I think they were courageous. I think they were extroverted. I think they were passionate but lighthearted. These are guys who are no longer cowards, denying their Savior, hiding behind closed doors. These are guys who are risking their lives and changing the world and it actually felt good and they're excited about it. God's design is that we be filled with the Spirit. We've said this a couple times. God's design for the church is that it's a lens that the rest of the world gets to look through to see the alternate reality of the way the things of the world are actually supposed to be when faced with redemption. Paul says here, live as children of light. Wake up, wake up sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. See, it's a more beautiful truth. I think the last practical question then is some of us are saying, okay, I know I need to get rid of some stuff in my life. Sexually, uh, alcohol abuse, I have some of these issues. I know I need to get rid of it. I know I need to be filled with the Spirit. How do I get filled with the Spirit? Now, admittedly, the Spirit of God is not a force. He's a person And therefore, he's got his own independent will, so you can't control him entirely on your own. However, we're also told in Scripture by Jesus how to get the Spirit, and he puts it very simply like this in Luke 11. He says, just ask for him. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? I bet if we polled and I asked you, how many of you have not asked for more of the Spirit in your lives yet? It would probably be a decent percentage. Start praying for more of the Spirit to fill you up in your life. Go the places, well, you can't control the Spirit exactly. Go the places where the Spirit promises to work, which is His means. The means of grace, the gospel in word and sacrament. And what you do then, see what the Holy Spirit will do when you meditate on the means of grace is the Holy Spirit will cause you to look at the grace of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't shine a light on himself. He becomes a light that shines on the work of Jesus Christ. And when you meditate on the grace of Jesus, 
it'll slowly get rid of all your negative emotions. It's, honestly, you can just explain this psychologically. Think about all your negative emotions that we mentioned earlier. Negative emotion mapped out onto the past in your life are things like guilt and regret. Well, if you meditate on the grace of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? Jesus, 2,000 years ago at Calvary, paid for all of your past sins. So you have no, it's already done with. It's already paid for. You have no basis for regret or shame or guilt anymore. What, if you meditate on the grace of Jesus Christ, what does it do for your negative emotions regarding the present? Present negative emotions are things like bitterness and anger. Well, if you meditate on the grace of Jesus, you realize God has forgiven me infinitely for all of my sins and therefore I can proportionately and finitely forgive other people for the sins that they've committed against me. It can melt the negative emotion away. You know what negative emotion mapped out onto your future looks like? It's anxiety and fear of what might come. So what do I do? If I meditate on the grace of Jesus Christ, what do I realize? My Savior has already risen from the grave. He's already ascended into heaven. He sits on his throne ruling all over, over all things for my good and he's prepared a place in heaven for me. So no matter what I face in this lifetime, I know how the story ends. I end in the arms of my heavenly father. What do I really have to be afraid or anxious about? I, I know I said that quick. Did you follow that? When the spirit focuses us on the grace of Jesus, all the negative emotions that we would otherwise self-medicate start to become remedied organically, holistically, and spiritually. So meditate on the grace of Jesus and do it real quick. Do it in community. This isn't self-empowerment language. Um, it is the power of Christ expressed to us through community. Uh, look at what he says here. It's one of the last things. I'm not sure if you caught this. He said, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Now, what exactly does it mean to sing hymns to one another? I'm not exactly sure practically what that looks like and we're not going to take the time to figure it out. But what I do want you to recognize is it says one another. Stop trying to do this alone. We are doing this together. The Spirit shines a light on the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus so that you have without a doubt the fact that Jesus loves you. His cross proves that. His empty tomb proves he's powerful enough to help you. So meditate on those two aspects of his grace and it will cause us collectively to become a light to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through your Son by the power of your Spirit. And the one thing we are desperate for more of in life is your spirit. We don't need all our problems to go away. We need to become more powerful to face those problems head on because that makes us powerful enough to help face the problems of others head on and become a redemptive force in the world. Help our brothers and sisters who are struggling sexually, who are struggling with substance abuse, help them be especially filled with the spirit, confess their sins, experience grace and forgiveness and be excited by a new life. Lord Jesus, may this glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.